and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. In our movie tonight, uh, we are continuing with October, which is Scary Movie Month. And our movie tonight is technically not probably a horror movie, but it is a suspense, thriller, scary movie. I'm talking about the 1995 serial killer movie called Copycat, which is a personal favorite of mine. And I have a lot to say about this one, probably more so than almost any movie I've done up to this point, just because I have a very specific background in knowledge of serial killers, which you may find interesting. So, uh... Again, we'll get into Copycat here in a second. I want to bring on my guest. My guest, he's been on before. He did my uh, Mother podcast, the Albert Brooks movie Mother. He is a actor, screenwriter, YouTuber, and quite a bit of a troublemaker, to be honest. He's going to get me in trouble <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, Mike Harlow. Hey, Mario. Thanks so much for having me. This is very exciting. I feel like I'm back at Blockbuster again. Yes, that's something Mike Mike publicizes staff picks a lot. He's always out there on you know, on Facebook and Twitter talking about it, and that's the phrase you use. It's like if Blockbuster Video had a podcast. It is because I feel like, you know, I genuinely feel sorry for kids today that they will never have the experience we did of going to the video store, and it was the most exciting thing ever. And that, and even when you go to the movie theaters these days, it's like it seats 50 people, and it's just – I feel like the – Art of movie watching is just gone, and you're keeping it alive, and I think that's amazing. I am doing my best, and I'm so happy you said that, because that's something I have said, too, that I always feel like a little bit of American culture died when video stores went away. Yes. Yeah, because, and this is for younger, you know, younger people who may not ever have been familiar with video stores, you could just walk in there, and I would go in there every weekend. I was always in the video store, and you'd just be browsing stuff, looking for stuff you've never seen before. And like when if you use Netflix now, they have a menu and everything sorted and categorized and gives you recommendations. But in a video store, it was up to you. And a lot of the time, you're just picking it based on the box or the cover art or the name. So it could be the greatest movie ever or the biggest piece of crap ever. And so it was always a wonderful Russian roulette game of entertainment. That's why that's what I miss. And you would discover so many odd things just from walking around the video store. And sometimes you spend hours there. And those people who would work at Blockbuster when I was a kid, those were like my idols. <laughs> I, I, it hurts me so much that I never worked in a video store, and I cannot believe I never did. I wanted to. Okay, I will, I will, I will paint a picture for people who are younger than us. This is an old game that kids in the 80s and 90s used to play. You'd go into Blockbuster Video, and you'd see a box. Like, I want, to see, I want this new release, and I see the box, and behind it they have the actual VHS. You know what I'm talking about, right? The tape to rent. Yes, I forgot about yeah. that. So the tape was there, but I wouldn't have any money on me. Or my dad had the money he was going to rent the movie. So the goal my brother and I would play was hide the video in the store so nobody else would be able to find it. <laughs> I would do something like that too. Yeah, so we'd like take like uh, Forrest Gump and go hide it behind like Leprechaun 3 and hopefully nobody will find it in the next three hours and before dad can come back and rent it. So it was always a fun little game of uh, scavenger hunt and that's what I miss, stuff like that. Or when, maybe, no, this is when I was a little kid, or you would put the different movie in the different box. <laughs> <laughs> so you put like show, you would put like showgirls in the box of like the Little Mermaid and be like, oh, I'm renting the Little Mermaid, Dad. <laughs> and of course, there was the always, my parents wouldn't let me watch R-rated movies, so I'm going to go see and see how close I can come to seeing boobs on the back of a movie box somewhere, <laughs> because some of these come very close to seeing showing cleavage, and I was very excited about that when I was like 12. <laughs> Same. 
but my my parents were very uh I don't know maybe it's because they're artists and they're but there were very few movie restrictions when I was a kid. We like watched Pulp Fiction together when I was maybe like six or seven. Did your did your parents have to explain what a gimp was? <laughs> <laughs> now, son, this is a leather boy sex slave that they would keep in the back of their pawn shop. You know, they did. They, I did have to ask why milk was coming out of her nose. <laughs> <laughs> this is an ad from the Dairy Council, son. Yeah, and then I could never. Do you remember those like um? Ice cream sandwiches that they would always always have in the little freezer at Blockbuster, the chip witch. I was I was never able to eat that for years after I saw Pulp Fiction as a kid because it would make me think of the shit coming out of her nose when she ODs. <laughs> this is the quality entertainment people tune into staff picks for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm warning you guys, this podcast is gonna get out of control because Mike and I we feed off each other and we have bad habits and we have language language issues. And uh, and the this okay the serial killer stuff. I have to say, <laughs> last time I did a movie with Mike, we did Mother, a gentle Albert Brooks comedy, and it was a good episode, and we both loved that movie. And Mike said, "I want to do something murdery. I love murder. I'm obsessed with murder. Let's do a murdery movie." <laughs> so, that this is where we're coming from. So, is this one murdery enough for you, Mike? Yes, totally. So you know, y'all consider this your trigger warning. <laughs> yes. We're going to joke about some horribly inappropriate topics. I can already tell in this one. Um, let's uh, Before we get into the movie, give us your history. How do you know this movie? Like, what's your history with Copycat? Why, why did you want to pick, specifically pick this one? So, well, two reasons, mainly. First of all, I feel like it's very underappreciated. It's sort of the bastard child of Silence and Seven. So not enough people know it. But I remember when I was a kid, Copycat was one of those perpetual blockbuster movies that you would always see. There were certain movies that you would always either see the VHS somewhere or the poster on the wall or something. And this was totally one of them. Um, but the first time I saw this was actually super fun. Uh, when I was maybe like 16 or something, uh, this woman who lived in my building on like the 20 something floor, this old lady was going away and asked me to like cat sit or something for her so i was like oh yeah totally of course and so I of course just like threw a party and had all my friends over and it was the first time for like a weekend kind of living on my own or something it felt like so anyway we had a party and then we ended up watching copycat in the morning and it was just awesome so, <laughs> so this was like the cherry on top of the sunday at the end of the night yeah it was like we all woke up in the morning and had cereal and watched copycat on vhs <laughs> Yeah, it's funny that you say this is a movie that was perpetually at the video store because I don't know if you have the same experience, but it feels to me this is like a movie that's almost virtually unheard of nowadays, like nobody talks about it anymore. Yeah, that's true. Well, it was sort of in that weird in-between where it came, I think, it, did this come out before Seven? Because it feels like it was sort of in between Silence of the Lambs and Seven, and this just got lost in the shuffle. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because that is the one thing I want to get across to people is that... This movie will be forever associated with the movie Seven. They came out the same year. They have very similar uh, topics and themes. And like I just did with The Prestige versus The Illusionist, at the time, people would always talk about these as a pair, Seven and Copycat. And Seven is by far the more acclaimed of the two movies. That's the one that everyone says is better. And I will call bullshit on that immediately mm -hmm. because I love Copycat. And my argument with that is... I find like I think Seven is a good movie, but it beats you over the head with unpleasantness so long that I find it hard to get through. 
And Copycat doesn't do that. This is more of like a mainstream, enjoyable movie to watch. So I will ever argue that even though Seven is the more acclaimed of the two, this is the one that I think will I would recommend to people more. Yeah, see, I don't know. Maybe I have bad taste, so I like unpleasantness. But <laughs> it definitely outranks all the other 90s thrillers, like Kiss the Girls and all of those. Because remember that there was a span of – actually, it was probably after Seven that this happened. But in the, like, second half of the 90s, it was just, like, a uh, conveyor belt of thrillers. Yeah, serial killer movies. And that's something I'm glad yeah. you brought up because, you know, nowadays there's all these documentaries on serial killers. Everyone talks about them on social media. And everyone's like, oh, it's like the golden age of people watching serial killer entertainment. And I'm like, bitch, please, you didn't live through the 90s if you think this is the golden age, because like, it was a new serial killer movie every four months back in the day. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention, too. So when I was a little kid going to Blockbuster, they had the poster for Copycat. And by the way, I, I have to say, terrible poster. <laughs> like, you remember it, but it doesn't, you know. Anyway, um, and I'd like, I'd, I think I read wrong what it said, and I always thought it was called Copy Hat. So I always wanted to see Copy Hat, and I didn't know what it was, and I, like, had this whole story in my head because I saw there were two women. So I'm like, okay, there's two women, one hat, and they're both wearing the same hat, so they, you know, get into this whole feud over it, and they have a big fight because of the hat. She copied her hat. Yeah, I hate to tell you this, Mike, but that's the movie Single White Female. <laughs> Ooh, see, I forgot about that one, too. There were so many 90s thrillers. Yeah, it was so murdery. Okay, let me go into my history here because this is not something I share on staff picks a lot. And this, I don't know if this will surprise people, but you will, you will realize what you're in for on this episode. So I am one of the original serial killer book junkies. And I inherited this from my mom. My mom back in the 80s would just read books about true crime and serial killers and stuff. And I inherited that from her. And that, like, that was all I read as a kid. All I read were true crime stories. Like, I've read so many books on Ted Bundy that I know a guy who writes Ted Bundy books who uses me as a resource. <laughs> when he has questions about Ted Bundy, he'll ask me. He's like, uh, "What? tell me about Lake Sammamish. And that's the thing with the Ted Bundy story. It happened in Seattle in Lake Sammamish State Park right there. I grew up on Lake Sammamish. Like, I know all those true crime locations. And I've driven people around in Seattle on the Ted Bundy reality tour, like to all the crime scenes. <gasps> Oh, my God. You are my hero. Can we go on, like, a murder tour? We will. Next time we're in Seattle, tell me to take you on the Ted Bundy tour. I'm going to go to Seattle now. There you go. Yeah, it's a good place just for that. Lots of serial killing up in Seattle. But what I'm getting at is that I, I have such an extensive background in this that I my plan when I was in college is I wanted to be an FBI profiler. I wanted to do, like, Silence of the Lambs and work for the FBI and do criminal psychology. And the problem was in the 90s, they didn't have a lot of programs for that yet in college. There were only like four of them at the time, and so I was kind of SOL, and so I ended up going into um, programming, computer programming, the natural alternative instead. But <laughs> nowadays, there's all sorts of criminal psychology, forensic psychology, all sorts of stuff in colleges across the country, and I'm a little jealous that I couldn't go into that because that is what I should be doing. That was my future plans, Mike, and it just never panned out. Ah, uh, but at least you have the fond murder memories to look back on. I do. I have the fond mur murder memories, and I can also call BS at several points in this movie when they did not accurately describe what serial killers did. So, <laughs> this is the world we're walking into here that I've, I've, I think I was explaining this to Mike before the podcast that I, 
I've talked about serial killers and true crime stories so many times over the years to so many people that sometimes I'll lapse into phrases and subjects that don't seem weird to me, but they seem very inappropriate to other people. <laughs> like, I'll just start talking about Ted Bundy, and I'll bust out, like, a necrophilia trivia fact. And I'm like, wait wait a minute, that, that probably sounds weird to you, doesn't it? So that's the kind of topics we'll be delving into this one. And so I'm, I'm warning you ahead of time. See, I don't want to have friends who find talk of necrophilia to be weird. Yeah, who are these people that don't that find that odd? I feel like that's a barometer of whether people can be friends with us or not. It's the the necrophilia line right there. How you feel, pro or con? Yeah, because it ain't gonna get better. It's all downhill from necrophilia. All right, so I'm just uh, we'll just check off the little explicit box on iTunes for this podcast already. Okay, so yeah, so. When this movie came out in 1995, it's like, oh, it's about a serial killer who copies other serial killers. And I'm like, here's my money. I will give you all my money. I will watch this on opening night because this is like a movie made for me because I know all this stuff. And there's actually a second thing about this movie that even makes it even more personal to me. You don't know this, obviously. But the opening scene in the movie, Mike, when there's all the, the students in the auditorium, you know that scene? Yeah. They had an open casting call for extras for that scene. No. I went to college at Santa Clara University, which is right by where this movie was filmed, and they had a casting call. We need a bunch of white male college students to come stand in a crowd. And I almost did it. I was going to do it, and I, I forget what happened. There was a basketball game I had to go to that night instead. What? But I should be in this movie. Half the people in that auditorium scene are people I know. You chose a basketball game over being in copycat with Sigourney Weaver? You can't make me feel any worse than I already feel about myself. My oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> so that was my chance, and it sucks because my dad has been in a movie. My dad was an extra in an Elvis movie. It happened at the World's Fair. He's a vendor. <gasps> That's so cool. Yeah, my brother was an extra in a... There's one of these movies where a, like a talking gorilla goes to school in the 90s. I don't know what it's called, but my brother's like an extra in one of the classroom scenes. So everybody in my family has been in a movie but me, and this is the one I should have been in, and I turned it down. So it's it will haunt me until my dying day. Uh, I was an extra on The Good Wife, and I could do an entire podcast series on what a bitch Juliana Margulies is. <laughs> All right, we'll save that for next time. We'll get a Juliana Margulies movie. Oh, ghost ship. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the 1995 serial killer movie, the one that's not Seven, but I will I will recommend to people way ahead of Seven just because it's less unpleasant. It, uh, one of the rare movies that features two female leads, which is a big deal. Uh, and even better, it wasn't a big deal then. <laughs> In 1995. Now it has to be. Yeah, you wouldn't have even thought it was a thing. It's like you got Sigourney Weaver and Holly Hunter are these two women who catch serial killers. And, and there's a hilarious trivia fact, I don't know if you read about this, that Sigourney Weaver is about nine feet tall. And Holly Hunter is about two feet tall. So almost every scene they're together, Sigourney has to be sitting down so they appear in the frame together. Oh, that is true. They're always sitting together. Yes, that's on the IMDb trivia page. See, I thought it was just because she was nuts and stuck inside. And the other thing I wanted to talk about this movie is that um, when it was billed, and people may not know this, when it was billed, it was billed as Harry Connick Jr. as a serial killer. And going into it, you thought he was the lead. And for people who may not know, Harry Connick Jr. is a famous, what is he, a jazz musician? Something like that. Yeah, very famous, well-respected artist and singer. And he decided to go into acting, and he was in Independence Day and this in the same year. And this was like his big breakout. And they're like, wow, Harry Connick is a serial killer. He's like a nice guy. 
But as we go into the movie, we'll find out he is not the lead serial killer. They hid the real serial killer, this actor named William McNamara. Is that who that is? Why does it sound familiar? What else was he in? I thought, wasn't William McNamara the guy who was in Mindhunter and CSI? Um, I don't know. I, I should know that. I don't. I just know this guy in this movie, this baby face actor, William McNamara. Yeah. I've never seen him in anything else. He's this perfect little baby face serial killer, but he was not included in the advertising. So when he shows up in the movie as the killer, it's kind of a surprise. I don't think he's really done anything else. He could be. I really hope he's not listening. He was in... Wait, he was in the Jerry Springer movie. That's where I saw him. I think he was in the Jerry Springer movie. All right, is that one I should do on staff picks? I'm not familiar with the Jerry Springer movie. Ringmaster. <laughs> so William McNamara's claim to fame, he was in Copycat and Ringmaster. <laughs> and they're like sister, or no, it's a mother and daughter, and she's like, hey, I didn't tell you you could come in here. And then the mother is like, well, I didn't tell you you could fuck my husband. <laughs> And I think he's the husband. That You know, that does sound like a Jerry Springer movie, the way you described it, yes. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> okay, so let's delve into Copycat here. This is a two-hour movie. There's a lot going on, a lot of references to famous serial killers in the past. And again, in the 90s, this was like the golden age of everyone being excited and learning about serial killers. So, yeah, this was right there. And then for some reason, it just got forgotten. So well, I'm glad we're able to bring it back. You, re you ready for this, Mike? We are bringing the copycat back. All right. So the opening of this movie is there's an auditorium and there's all these college students learn take, learning about serial killers. And uh, I don't know where this was filmed. Again, I, I could have been here. It was either at Stanford or Menlo Park, somewhere around there. And it's just a bunch of college students and they're be, being given a lecture by a famous doctor. Now, Mike, tell us about this doctor, the, the famous Dr. Helen Hudson. <laughs> Dr. Helen Hudson is Sigourney Weaver, and she's wearing a red dress, which will be very important later. Um, and she has people stand up. She's teaching them, like, basically, what would you say, the demographics of serial killers? She's like, if you're this, sit down, and this, sit down. And then she's like, one of you could be a serial killer. Yeah, that's... And all this is is factually accurate. The most serial killers are indeed mm -hmm. white males age 20 to 35, uh... Yeah, just everything she says is accurate. By the way, something I noticed in a couple of shots is when – so she basically it's supposed to be white men, I think, in that age group standing. And if you look to the sides, you can see people standing who are definitely not white men. Yeah, <laughs> there's an Asian guy. I know that. They focus right on and a, him. And a Hispanic guy, yeah. <laughs> I, I think they judge demographics of race a little differently in the 90s. There were less boxes to check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, you're right. It's the current year. We don't know. <laughs> what they might identify as. So who knows? But yeah, there are all these white males and she's giving a lecture on, you know, which she, na she names off a bunch of famous historical serial killers. She names the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo. She mentions Kenneth Bianchi and uh, Angelo Buono, the, the Hillside Stranglers, David Berkowitz, Son of Sam, Ted Bundy and Dahmer. And she names them off. She's basically giving a lecture. And as she's giving a lecture, she's creeped out. There's someone out in the audience that's staring at her. And she sees Harry Connick Jr., who, as we said, is in this for all of two minutes, maybe. Yeah, again, he you think he's the star of the movie. Harry Connick Jr., the singer, plays this serial killer named Daryl Lee Cullen. And he's this scummy little redneck guy. He's got missing teeth. And she sees him out in the audience. 
and he's like leering at her that he's gonna kill her and she and he does yeah he does the thing where he like slices his throat with his finger yes the the classic harry connick harry connick jr move (laughs) he was such a douchebag on american idol by the way oh was he (laughs) i didn't i didn't see it he was was he like daryl lee Cullum? did he did he stab anybody he just has this very douchey kind of vibe. He stabbed. He stabbed them with his. He stabbed their hearts and dreams. Now, did he stick him or did he shoot him? <laughs> we haven't gotten to that yet, Mario. Okay. No spoilers. Okay. Yeah, people. People are gonna hear that and be like, "Excuse me." So she's kind of rattled because she sees this guy out in the audience, Daryl Lee Colum, and we will find out a backstory that Helen Hudson goes around the country and she gives lectures to people about the danger of serial killers. She's like a psychologist, and she has recently testified against this, di- against this guy, Daryl Lee Colum, who killed two people. She was the expert witness. He has claimed he's going to get out of jail and kill her in retaliation, and that's why she sees him in the audience and she's a little spooked. But she just brushes it off that it's like a vision. But it turns out it's not a vision because guess who's waiting for her in the bathroom after the speech? Yeah, so she goes in the bathroom and a cop is with her and checks it out, checks in the stalls, and nobody's there except one stall. He sees the feet of this woman wearing these fucking ugly shoes, and that should have given it away. The movie would have been over. It would have not existed if they would have just been like, hmm, those are some big fucking ugly shoes for a woman. Maybe we'll just wait until she's done going doing her business. Well, I like to defend Helen Hudson here is that she has spent years studying men and males and serial killers. Perhaps she's not aware of foot style or uh, uh, yeah, footwear choices of females. So I, I would give a little benefit of the doubt to, do- <laughs> to the good doctor here. But she didn't think to look up above the stall. Yeah. Okay, so... In pretty much the worst bathroom encounter a person can have, Helen is accosted in the bathroom by this guy, Daryl Lee, who is out to kill her, and he hangs her up by the throat by the, with this really thin wire in Ooh. one of the more horrific scenes I can think of in this movie. Which, by the way, I think this is a very important question. Which is the scariest public restroom scene of all time, copycat or scream? That's a good question. I am not a fan of scream, but the scream one is pretty good. The, the scream one to this day, if I am alone in a big public bathroom, scares the shit out of me. And that's before I get in the stall. Then I go into the stall and the copycat scene scares the shit out of me. I'm going to throw out a wild card here and I'm going to pull out of my butt Friday the 13th, part five, a new beginning where demon gets impaled in the outhouse. You know, I, I do you know, I actually haven't seen most of the Friday the 13th movies. Oh, damn it. I just spoiled it for you. I am what a horrible horror fan I am. That's the one that that and Hellraiser are the only like franchises I haven't I never got into. Well, well, that's more for my audience that knows Friday the 13th. I just I just referenced Demon in part five. So thank you. Pulling that right out of my butt. Now I got to now I got to watch that. It will change your life. It's a masterpiece. Which one is that the is that that's not Jason goes to Manhattan, is it? No, that's eight. This is part five. The one with I can't believe it's not Jason. It's a fake Jason. Oh, fuck that one. I remember I've seen I've heard about it. I've seen it. <laughs> You've never even seen it. yet. You hate it. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so, yeah, the good doctor, Helen, is hung up by her neck and and Daryl Lee is going to. Oh, yeah, because wait. So he like lifts his feet up. He put, takes off the fucking ugly shoes and it's really him. So he has this whole. Can we talk about, by the way? How the hell did he get in there with this entire setup? Because it's not like, oh, he just has a like, couldn't he just like 
stabbed her or shot her or something. And he had a gun anyway, but like, what was he in there for 20 minutes setting all this up? Because there are wires and clips and, uh, it's like this steel, it's like, it's not a rope. It's like a steel wire. You have to remember, Mike, this is pre 9-11. So <laughs> security was very lax. You could just walk in there with a bazooka and nobody would care. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, that is a good question, though. How did he have 20 minutes to set up his cliffhanger rig in the bathroom? <laughs> and so, so then anyway, so she's just like chilling there. She's hanging for a while. And it's like, how long does it take her to die? Well, she's pulling up with her hands. Like, I'm trying to paint a picture for people. She's got this noose around her neck and he's yanked her straight up with this wire. And she's holding on to the... And this is above the toilet, by the way. Exactly, yes. It's, she's above the toilet, but she's holding on to the rope with her hands. And... This will be important. One shoe falls off. Just one. One shoe. One beautiful feminine shoe, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, Daryl Lee has it all set up. He's going to murder Helen. But what he has not counted on is that there's a second cop out guarding the door. Like, he has killed the first cop. He's gone after her. But the second cop comes in and rescues her. And this will become very important because Helen avoids a near-death experience. And she is now traumatized. This guy tried to kill her. And this will set the whole impetus of the movie forward where the rest of the movie, she is now a basket case. She is now agoraphobic and cannot leave the house because she's so terrified of these guys coming after her. Oh, and he kills the cop in the bathroom. Yes, kills the cop, yeah, but... He has a knife by his throat and a gun to him, and he asks her, what, what was it, should I... Should I stick him or should I shoot him? Should I stick him or should I shoot him? Which is exactly what I say to my dates. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> so you don't get a lot of second dates, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so that's the start of the movie. Helen Hudson has had this great trauma, and she's now terrorized. She lives in her house, and she's a shut-in. And Sigourney Weaver has said on the record that this is one of her, of all the acting performances she's ever done, this is the one she's maybe the most proud of, because she does a really good job in this movie of portraying someone who is overcome with agoraphobia. Like, she, she really put a lot of work into studying this stuff. She is amazing. And I feel like even, you know, she's very famous, but I feel like she still doesn't get the respect she deserves. She is so fantastic in everything, and she has such a strength to her without even trying to, even when she's not playing a role that's a necessarily tough, strong person. Yeah, she's very vulnerable in this. It's not a typical Sigourney Weaver uh, performance. No, but she's still just exudes. She's such a powerful presence. Okay, so now we're going to go into the present, and we jump ahead 13 months, and Helen is now a shut-in. She no longer gives lectures. She no longer associates with the public. She is a terrified of her fan base, frankly. And I got to tell you this, Mike, this is funny, that I, I saw Stephen King do a book signing once back in the 90s, and he was the exact same way. Really? He is so terrified of his fans. It was funny. Like, people would come up and ask him questions, and they'd have to have, like, three levels of security in between him and the fans. <laughs> what? <laughs> it was, he was so terrified back then, because this is right after Misery and before he had his car accident. Yeah, he was <laughs> – I, I always remember they'd always come up, and they're like, Steve, I'm your number one fan. They'd all make little jokes, make little jokes, and he'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's Helen. That's what Helen's life is now. She's terrified of all these serial killer junkie, junkies wanting to know her and write to her, and she's scared of them. And is like having anxiety attacks while counting presidents and spending her nights in chat rooms, like support groups. And, you know, it is really amazing that the chat rooms weren't, weren't the way that she almost died. Yeah, it's it's interesting watching this movie now and seeing the technology compared to now. Like now you have social media and stuff. 
back then you didn't. You just have email and chat rooms and chat windows. And that's her whole life is just sitting there uh-huh. playing chess with people and doing counseling with people. And But she's she's quite tech savvy, I have to say. The 90s were so great. I loved it. And a blockbuster on every corner. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's like, and it's funny because now you'll watch uh, movies from the 90s and their technology and their computer stuff, which they were making up at the time. It didn't really exist. But it's like they're doing things on these huge computers that people can't even do today. It's like I love all those 90s tech things. Jurassic Park has always been my favorite. This is a Unix. I know this. <laughs> Or uh, or the net. Did you ever see the net? I have, yeah. Sandra Bullock cracks the case. Oh, so good. <laughs> All right, so Helen is in a, she's a shut-in in her house, which I should point out is the greatest house I have ever seen in a movie. Right. So I will paint a picture for people. San Francisco, one of maybe the most desirable real estate market in the country. She lives, she has a waterfront property right next to the Golden Gate Bridge. It's like, what, 8,000 square feet with like two stories. And it's got these windows that she can open and close. They're like these automatic blinds. And she's got a lake or like a a bay view. Like that's like a $40 million house. I bet now you regret not going into serial killers. (laughs) Yes. Should I stick them or should I shoot them? Like your dates? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so we met Helen, and she, again, she's a shut-in. And then we meet the other major characters in this movie, and these are two cops. MJ Monahan, played by Holly Hunter, and then Ruben, played by Dermot Mulroney. And they will be a cop team for most of the movie. I just love Holly Hunter. I'm very excited. She has this weird voice. I love her. Yeah, she has a cool little accent. Where's she from? Texas? Yeah. But but it's like this weird, like, I don't know. She has this weird, like, southern speech impediment-y kind of thing. I don't know. I love her. Yeah, and one would argue she's really the lead of this movie, although Sigourney Weaver, I think, gets more acclaim. But, yeah, Holly Hunter is this detective, and Ruben is her assistant, and they are going to be thrust into a case right off the bat where – it appears there's a serial killing going on in San Francisco. And, uh-oh, this is not good because they haven't had a serial killer in the Bay Area. And, again, Mario knows this off the top of his head since the Zodiac Killer, who was never caught back in the 60s. So this is a big deal because, what, the first one they find in a bathtub, right? Did they really, not, in, in actuality, not have any serial killers there since the 60s? I will throw a super obscure one out here. And there was a thing called the Zebra Killings in the 70s, which was... It was a very scary one that not a lot of people know about where black militants would hunt down white tourists and kill them on the streets, which wasn't really a serial killing, but it was a it was a spree killing. But in terms of like straight serial killer, Zodiac would have been the big one. And then this and I mean, there's other it's, it's debatable if people are serial killers or not, but there's like multiple murders. But Zodiac was definitely the big one. How many people do you have to kill to be a serial killer? Well, that's an interesting question, Michael. (laughs) it's i would say my personal opinion on that is it's not so much the number as it is the reason you kill them like ted bundy in particular he had a part of his brain like the pleasure center of his brain mixed in with the violence center and the sex center so like the only way he could get sexually turned on was by murdering someone and having sex with them as they were dying like that is a serial killer he is forced to kill the only way he can get pleasure is by killing people so it's like that's to me as a serial killer he had no there was no way he was ever going to stop because he's biologically driven so to me it's more the the why they do it not the number so you're saying it's quality over quantity 
I didn't say that. You said that. <laughs> but yeah, like there's some, there's a serial killer in LA named uh, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, who yes. I would always argue wasn't really a serial killer because he didn't have to kill anybody. He wasn't biologically driven. He just wanted to be a dick, basically. <laughs> who can currently be seen on American Horror Story 1984. And he's the scariest, to be honest, because he didn't have a victim pattern. He would just shoot anybody at random. Was he the same as that show that they had, The Night Stalker? No, that was a different show. That was before he showed up. So I would argue he was not a serial killer. He was just he just liked the attention and liked being famous. Don't we all? <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so they found a body in a bathtub, and Monaghan and Reuben go out and uh, check it out. And it's this lady who's been in the bathtub, and she's posed. And they're like, oh, that's weird. And what's happening in the movie is that this is the third killing in the pattern. This is the third victim, and all the media is screaming, oh, it's a serial killer. And the cops are saying, no, it's not. These are not related. And this is very accurate to how these go down in the news. The public always thinks serial killer first. The cops always think that as last. So it's a, it, this is actually quite realistic how it would happen. Well, and they always fill the, that role of in every movie, the adults kind of saying, oh, no, it's not really happening. Until they have to realize three quarters of the way through the movie, oh, yes, it is. Yeah, because cops do not like serial cases because they are a pain to do, and they usually go over multiple jurisdictions and locations, and so it's a pain in the butt. Cops do not want anything to be a serial killing. They just don't. Ooh, I love all these, like, murder facts. This is awesome. This is like, I feel like I'm at Disney World. Well, we're not even to the necrophilia part yet, so hang on. <laughs> So Holly Hunter notices, she's like, you know, there's a ligature around this person's neck. And she's like, has it been removed? She's like, was there a bow or something? Turns out the cops have removed this evidence. And this will become very important because what happens here? Helen, from her, she starts calling in tips, right? Yeah. And it was something where it was a stocking that was on her head. And she knew that because it was, what was it exactly? <laughs> it's a bow, a big loopy bow. But wasn't there a stocking? What happens is I'll describe this for people is that there's a killer out there imitating other famous killers. And if you study serial killers, you'll know a lot of these crime scene photos are out there. Anybody can see them. They're perfectly, you know, findable on the Internet. And so this guy is taking these famous crime scene photos of past killings and he's imitating them. So he, what he's doing is he's imitating the Boston Strangler right down to the way the body's posed, right down to the looping bow around the neck. He's just showing people, look what I can do. I can copy these famous crime scene photos. And the cops don't realize that right away, but Helen, the serial killer expert who was a shut-in, does, and she's calling into the cops almost from day one saying, this is a serial killer, this is a serial killer, so this is where the, the, the uh, tension is going to come in. The cops not wanting to listen to her. And she's pointing out the past crime scene photos and the past killings, the similarities between those and these current ones. Yeah, and she's making points that they don't want to hear. But eventually Monaghan, Holly Hunter's like, you know, this lady keeps calling and I think she's a crank, but maybe we should go visit her and see if she knows anything. Because what happened? They do a trace on her, right? They figure out it's calling. It's it's Dr. Hudson. Mm hmm. OK, yeah. So they go to her house. Yeah. And it's like like sisterhood of the traveling murderers. Yeah. So we get the first scene with Holly Hunter going to meet Sigourney Weaver and Sigourney Weaver is just a nutcase. <laughs> she's like popping pills and drunk she's like you on a weekend right just a just a mess <laughs> i wish i'm so bored i'm passed out watching the fucking muppet show <laughs> well that's what reuben is doing they don't mention that but reuben is watching the muppet show <laughs> and 
as as Holly Hunter's Monahan is grilling Dr. Hudson about these serial killings, and 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 Sigourney doesn't want anything to do with it, right? She's kind of uh, what would be the word? Uh, she's kind of confused. She wants to help, but she doesn't. She's uh, conflicted. And and this bitch is such a friggin' basket case that she can't even get her mail. Like she's has a broom that she's like sweeping the mail into her house and having a panic attack while she does it. Okay, explain to people who haven't seen that. What is agoraphobia and why is it so troubling for Helen? Uh, agoraphobia is when you're afraid to leave the house. So she's a total shut in, hasn't left in 13 months. And whenever she, even if she just sticks her arm in front outside the door to get the mail, she'll have a total meltdown. Um, and I think this is sort of a recurring sort of theme that there's been in a lot of Hitchcock movies and stuff like that, which sort of it builds a lot of tension that it keeps everything sort of confined to this one location, for her character at least. Yeah, and it, that's the thing. She's so terrified that Daryl Lee Cullum or some other killer is going to come get her. She cannot bother to even go out of her front door. And this is all very accurate. Like I said, Sigourney Weaver did a lot of research for this, and she is just a mess. And so the first time they start pulling out the crime scene photos, she like literally passes out, right, out of terror? Yeah. she She's amazing in this. They both are. Like, I really wish that Holly Hunter and Sigourney Weaver would do, like, buddy cop movies together. <laughs> they need to team up again. I don't think they could fit in the same car. Holly Hunter would need, like, a booster seat. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I feel like this would maybe be a good point that you would be a good person to ask about this. So, I feel like this has sort of become a bit of a movie trope that is recurring that you hear about a lot in different movies. Oh, it's a copycat. Do copycat killings happen in real life? Um... Yes and no, like nowhere near as much as people think they do, because serial killers tend to have their own M.O. and their own signature, and they tend to be very proud of those. Yeah, if you're going to be a serial killer, wouldn't you want to be your own serial killer? I don't think they happen as much. Be creative? Well, like stuff like school shootings. That's the stuff you have to worry more about copycats because that's someone who gets in the news. That's a one-time thing. But like yeah, a Ted Bundy honed his act for so long, and like Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, had a completely different act that worked even better. But they, they wouldn't have copycatted each other because they had their own signature. Hmm. Although there is one thing in this movie that is very accurate is where they start getting cranks coming in and confessing to the crimes. Yes. And I, th I think that does happen in real life. Yeah, too. they do. I've read a bunch of true crime books, and that's something the cops have to do in any big name killing or crime. They have to withhold some evidence because there's these serial confessors. They just come in and they want to confess, and it's the craziest thing. And, like, it, you see it in this movie. That's got to be its own sort of, like, mental illness. I bet you there must be some sort of term for that. It's along the lines of Munchausen syndrome where you just like getting attention. Yeah. It's crazy. And I've heard that sometimes uh, police will even in the media even include one or two like bits of false information so that if they include that in their story, they'll know that it's not really that. Yeah, it's it's crazy. The games the cops have to play like you think solving a crime would be relatively straightforward. But there's all these little yeah, just for the crazies. Yeah, the cra you got to watch out for these crazies that will confess to every crime. And I just want to throw out a little trivia fact. I know when Gary Ridgway, the green, you know, the Green River Killer. No, who's that? Okay, he's not in this movie because he had not been caught yet in 95. He was the big one in Seattle that killed way more than even Ted Bundy. But in 95, he was still unknown, so they didn't put him in the movie. But during his crimes in Seattle, he sent confessions to the police with details that could have fingered him, but they didn't believe it because there were so many confessions coming in, they couldn't pick out which ones were real and which ones weren't. 
Wow. <laughs> so, where where was it that that happened? Seattle. This is all up and down Seattle by the SeaTac Airport. This guy would just kill prostitutes and street and like street girls. Shit. Yeah, so uh so that's that's the issue that Monahan and the cops are running into. They they get these people confessing to these crimes. They got reporters saying it's a serial killing. They're like, "No, it's not." Meanwhile, they think it probably is. And now they realize Helen Hudson is weighing in and she's like a celebrity. They go to her house, they show her the crime scene photos. She passes out, but she's got like a she's got like a little manservant, Andy. Oh, oh, wait, and we forgot to mention that they uh, I guess uh, included the possibility that she could be one of those crazies. So they did that same thing where they put false information and false photos in with the ones that they showed her. And of course, cause she's this brilliant uh, whatever that she picked up on it right away. And she was like, Oh, I'm being tested. You got to do it. Even for the esteemed Dr. Hudson, you got to test her. Even for friggin' Dr. Helen Hudson. So yes, yeah, so I was talking about her manservant, Andy. She's got like a little servant that does all her chores and stuff. Yeah, a very typical 90s gay. <laughs> I feel like 90s gay, like, weren't, 90s gays weren't allowed to have their own lives. They were always, like, caretakers or sidekicks. Just a little satellite who was rotating around Dr. Hudson at all times. Yes. <laughs> Although, him being gay actually does factor into the movie later, so I can't just brush that off. It actually becomes part of the plot point later. See, I'm not only being a bitch. <laughs> so so they leave these crime scene photos, and then Andy says, well, I'll make sure Dr. Hudson sees them. And so Dr. Hudson eventually comes around to the fact, all right, I have to at least help him out. I keep telling him it's a serial killer. I better at least do some research. So she picks out which crime scene photos are the same guy. She's like, these three are the same guy. This one's not. And this is where she blows their mind. She's like, this guy's doing the Boston Strangler. He's imitating the most famous East Coast Strangler of all time. And because they're in San Francisco, the cops don't know that. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. I thought they were just not as smart as her. Yeah, but, she, I mean, she would know this stuff. But, yeah, Boston Strangler, very infamous. One of the first modern serial killers, although there's a lot of controversy over that, over whether the guy that was accused of being it is actually the guy. I don't know. You might want to – people might want to look up on that. There's a lot of controversy over DeSalvo. Yeah, that, oh, I didn't know that. That one, a lot of people do not agree that he was probably the guy. What happened to him? Was he, like, arrested or he, death? He or? went to jail, I believe, and I know he died, but I think he died in jail. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. I don't know. I'll give people a little homework. Go research that. Yeah, I got to keep a list of all the serial killers I got to look oh, up. Oh, we've just begun in this podcast, Mike. Don't worry. Yes. <laughs> so so uh, Sigourney Weaver says this is the Boston Strangler, and she pulls out these famous crime scene photos of the Boston Strangler. She's like, he's doing it right down to the last little detail, the way the bodies are posed, the way everything's set up. And Monaghan and Ruben are just blown away. They're like, wow, like I had no idea. And she's like, it's weird. She's like, these guys usually have their own MO. This guy's copying someone else's MO. I've never seen this before. And what's going to happen is the guy's going to start doing other serial killers. That's what they're not ready for. Yeah, I think at least when I first watched this, I expected that it would be one serial killer that he would follow through with and copy them. But no, we're getting like the greatest hits. It's the greatest hits, although they they screw up the two at the end, the most famous ones. I will I will gripe about that when we get up to Dahmer and Bundy. <laughs> See, I actually um I bet if you because I'm not really f so familiar with all of these real life killers, but I bet there's a lot of hidden stuff with it if you are more familiar with these cases. Oh yes, I will I will understate that by saying oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, Helen has a good line here. She's like, these serial killers, they crop up all over the place. And she's like, 
These guys are like viruses. They're always there's always some new mutation. And that's a good quote. Yes. Um oh, and I think we forgot to mention. So anyway, uh Helen has like a little chat with her manservant guy and talks about how cute Dermot Mulroney is and she misses having sex and she misses going out or whatever, but she won't cuz she's a shut-in. Yeah, that's the first thing that goes when you're a shut-in. It's very hard to get dates. See, that would immediately Nick's being agoraphobic for me. Yeah, and, and nothing's going to happen with Andy, so she's really SOL again. She's, it's tough. <laughs> so, so Helen is just sitting at home, and she's playing video chess with her friends. And Oh, uh, sorry. I was, gonna, I was just going to say, though, that sort of sets up uh, a bit of a, under, a subtextual recurring theme of which of these two ladies is going to shtup Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> I always forget that subplots in the movie until I watch it. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's like a huge 20-minute <laughs> interlude of who's going to have sex with Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> oh, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that about the payoff. <laughs> Dermot Mulroney, or as we know him on Saturday Night Live, Derbal McDillett. Is that what they call him? Hopefully at least one person got that joke. There was a sketch a couple of years ago where they were trying to figure out if the actor in the movie was Dermot Mulroney or Dylan McDermott. <laughs> and it was a problem because all the, the contestants in the game show were black, so they had no idea who these two guys were. And Jamie Foxx guessed that their name was Derbal McDillett. <laughs> I always remember that. So anyway, now we get to the subplot of the movie where the killer, who we will later, we'll, for now we'll just call him the copycat killer, starts sending Helen these taunting emails that he's going to he's gonna keep killing and she can't stop him. Is this where, is this where he sends her the thing? This is the girl in white. This is probably the creepiest scene in this movie. Oh, by the way, also, before that, um, so Helen, I never quite understood, so... Helen is like in the shower and going through her house and going through her closet. And then she comes back in her room and laid out on her bed is the red dress that she was wearing back when uh, he tried to hang her. So I always kind of questioned, is that in her head or is that real? Because if it were actually there, I'd have been out of that house and in the fucking Bahamas by then. <laughs> well, remember, she can't leave the house, so she can't do that. So she's screwed. But yeah, that is a major subplot. And one of the things that Helen has her little sanctuary. Like her house is her safe place, and the killer in this movie will repeatedly break into her house just to creep her out and scare her. So he's basically just toying with her, and like he's doing all these things. He lets her know he's been there, and then he starts sending her emails on her private server. But she doesn't freaking do anything. Like, that's what I don't get. Is she's this brilliant doctor, and she doesn't do anything. I'd have been so out of there. But again, where is she going? She can't leave the house. Oh, that's true. <laughs> See, that would have gotten me my over my agoraphobia real fucking fast. I do not feel you have the full respect of the agoraphobic here, Mike. <laughs> but yeah, so, so she starts getting this email. And this is the creepy one, and this is the image that I love from this movie, is that he has found this girl, the killer, has been videotaping this girl in a park. There's this, like, Summer of Love retrospective festival going on. He videotapes her, and he superimposes a skull over her face, and then the whole skull deteriorates into worms, and he's saying, I'm going to kill next. She's next. I'm killing her tomorrow. So it's a very, very creepy image. It's so 90s. It's like, do you remember all of those 90s movies and shows where they would make these little, like, flash things on their computer. Like, Clarissa Explains It All was the king of this. I was going to say, I'm not entirely sure he could have done this animation in 1995. Right? And um, also, so yeah, so it has this, like, skull on her face. Oh, and it's labeled tomorrow.afi tomorrow, so he's going to kill her tomorrow. And, you know, not to be derogatory, but 
he's filming her at this like Greenpeace peace and love festival. If you have to murder someone, it might as well be at the Greenpeace love and love and peace festival. Yeah, I mean, if she turns up dead on the ground, they're not going to notice for like two days. <laughs> having seen these festivals before. Yeah. But Helen is furious because now the serial killer is taunting her and uh, she goes to the cops. She's like, you led him to me. Like, I was safe here in my home. Now this guy's breaking into my house. He's sending me emails. And she's got a line here. She's like, I'm their damn pinup girl. They all know me. They all collect clippings. I'm the fucking muse of serial killers. <laughs> Which I always, you know, don't get me wrong. Love for Dr. Helen Hudson. All the respect for Dr. Helen Hudson. However, I always interpreted that little say, say that little monologue of hers as a little delusional because it's like, oh, these nut job serials, do they really know all that much about? Are they, are they really thinking about you that much? Maybe this one. But. Well, I mean, we're, we're led to believe she's probably written like 20 books on serial killers. That's how she can afford this house. Yeah. But they don't say that. I always thought she was a little sick in the head, though. I mean, she's on pills. You can't really trust anything that comes out of her mouth. She's a mess. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so this is where we finally meet our killer, that he's now taunting Helen that he's going to kill somebody tomorrow. And we finally flash forward and see him in his home life. And again, you think Harry Connick Jr. is going to be the killer because that's how they build it. But no, it's this guy, William McNamara, plays a guy named, what, Peter? What's his last name? Oh, what the hell is it? Oh, I should have this in my notes. Peter Foley. Peter Foley. Yeah. And he's just like some baby face he guy. Looks like someone, he looks like somebody who would be named Peter Foley. The eight, the typical Peter Foley-looking person. <laughs> and he's just like the baby-faced guy. He's married. He's got a wife. He's kind of henpecked. She kind of nags him. And he's just like this typical suburban guy. You wouldn't know he's a killer. And then he goes downstairs, and he's got a death lab in his basement. See, I would know in two seconds that he's a killer because, first of all, anyone who has those glasses is a serial killer. He has those, like, who was it that had those glasses? Was it Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bu No, not Ted Bundy. Was it Jeffrey Dahmer? Yeah, Dahmer definitely had glasses. But those glasses. So that was part of his copycatting. He he bought them off eBay. Those are Dahmer's glasses. <laughs> um, and he, so anyway, those three, then he, so he has this whole, like, friggin' torture chamber in his basement and the green peace and love girl is strapped down with a bag over her head. Yeah, this is one of the more horrific scenes in the movie. And again, this this movie isn't especially graphic, and it's not it doesn't beat you over the head with nastiness like Seven. But this is about as nasty as it gets. The girl tied up. You have got such a bug up your ass about Seven. Because there's like 99% of the world thinks Seven is the better of the two movies, and I'm the one holdout for copycat. So I must bring down Seven. <laughs> This scene ticks me off a little bit. So, well, so anyway, though, so he has this plastic bag taped over her head and he taunts her that he pokes like a tiny little air hole in her mouth. Um, and then you see him inject this like blue liquid in a needle and then it cuts away. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I wanted to know what the blue liquid was and where he's going to put it. Yeah, see, that's one of those things. If you know a lot about serial killers, you don't want us to know that because I know exactly what he's doing. Tell, tell me, tell me. The hillside stranglers love to, I will apologize to anybody who's squeamish. <laughs> the hillside stranglers love to torture their victims by injecting Windex into their veins. <gasps> what does that do? It's apparently the most horribly painful thing ever. You have ammonia going through your bloodstream, and they just love to hear their victims scream and be in pain. What does that do? Do they get, like, it just hurt? Like, fuck. It was just a tort, just to be assholes. <laughs> really? 
Does it do anything? Why Windex, though? Does it, like... I don't know, because those guys were chemists, and a lot of these... A lot of the serial killer books leave out these little facts like this that, but I know I happen to know that's a that's a hillside strangler thing. They loved injecting people with Windex, just like Jeffrey Dahmer would inject inject people with battery acid into their brains just to see what happened. Oh, what happened? Oh my God! Now I want to know what happened. Ah, <laughs> uh, wow! Well, this is a very educational podcast. <laughs> By the way, I just googled it. It's uh, the first thing that comes up. I just shot up six miller. I just shot up six milliliters of Windex. Am I going to die? Yeah, and that that's a hillside strangler thing. Je what Jeffrey Dahmer did is he wanted people to be his sex slaves, so he'd inject acid into their brain, hoping to basically hoping to lobotomize them, and they would never have a individual thought again. They'd just stay there, and then he would he would get the ratio wrong and he'd kill them accidentally. But that's what he was trying to do. What a fuck up. Anyway, so a lot of little details, little nasty details. So that's what's going on in that scene that he's injecting Windex into her veins. So that's it's very nice that they cut away. We didn't see that because that's one of the nastier details I know of any serial killer story. But the bigger picture for me in this scene is that he's killing this girl in his basement with his wife fully awake and aware upstairs. And you got to wonder then, is she like a Carmela Soprano that she kind of knows what's going on and. It's interesting because I, I kind of called BS on this at the time because I did not know of any serial killers that would kill someone while their wife was right upstairs watching TV. So at the time, I, I thought this this doesn't ring true to me. This isn't real behavior. But later, we talked about the Green River Killer earlier, Gary Ridgway. Yeah, I could see someone doing he that. He did. Like they give so few fucks. Yeah, he killed almost every girl that he killed in his bedroom, in his marital bedroom, when his wife was like out getting groceries. See, I could actually – I could see them doing it while they're at home with, the, like, one of these wives who's, like, you know, swishing vodka and popping pills and the killer guy just gives so few fucks. It could be. I don't know. That's that's kind of the dynamic we see here is that his wife doesn't really know him. He's got his little murder lab and computer lab in the Yeah, basement. she's got the TV on with the infomercials and the gin and tonic in her hand and the little dog in her lap. Yeah, this marriage might not be saved. This might be a Jerry Springer episode to tie it back to the ringmaster. Oh, might be a crossover. So McNamara was. This was the Springer episode. It was setting up the sequel. <laughs> so he's killing this girl in his basement, and he's just a sadist. And then the next day, we find her body. It has been placed on a hill up in San Francisco, right under a no-dumping sign. And Dr. Hudson immediately recognizes this, because that was a hillside strangler thing, and they were in L.A., they love to do little jokes like that to the cops. They'd put bodies right under no-dumping signs or no-trash signs. That was like their signature. So Hudson immediately recognizes this guy's now imitating a new serial killer. Okay, so now the guy is changing M.O.s, and now Helen's kind of intrigued. She's like, oh, my God, this guy's in getting these crime scene photos perfect right down to the last detail. And she's like, this guy's really smart. And, and the inspector's like, what do you mean? She's like, well, he's trying to dazzle us. He's saying, I can do one serial killer. Now I'm doing another one. And she's like, this guy's just getting started. Watch out. And from here on out, now it's a cornucopia of him imitating famous serial killers. Um, and then so he, like, uh, picks up some girl in the car. And who is that that he's imitating? It seems kind of Ted Bundy-ish, the sort of seducing that the, she's, like, his prey. This one is David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Now, Mike is in New York, so this is out in your neck of the woods, New York, who was <laughs> late 70s, son of Sam. Would uh, Berkowitz would approach either women in their cars or couples that were out like making out or necking in cars, parked cars. And he would ask for directions or he would just walk up and shoot them in the head. 
And he was one of the scarier serial killers, again, because he had no specific type of victim. It was just whoever he found. And so that's what he's doing here is that Peter Curtin or Peter Foley walks up, knocks on this girl's window, and then shoots her in the head. And right off the bat, Helen realizes, oh, no, now he's doing Son of Sam. And uh, she's on the phone with Dermot Mulroney, the big 90s phone, and she's like, is there a gas station? Is there this? And it's like she's calling everything that's going to happen. Yeah, she's she's calling the shot. She knows there's going to be a phone booth nearby. She knows there's going to be a note. She knows that Berkowitz would watch the crime scene, the cops investigating. And she even knows, this is a neat little detail, that she's like, turn on the tape deck. And they do, and it turns out, yeah, there's a Partridge Family song in the car, which would have been playing in 1977 in one of the victim's cars, that Peter has gone to the trouble to purchase a Partridge Family album. (laughs) And she says, she's like, turn on the cassette, it's going to be the Partridge Family. And there's this very odd shot there, too, of Holly Hunter in the car on the phone talking to Sigourney Weaver, and just the dead girl is just sitting in the passenger seat just chilling while she's on the phone. It's it's nice when a background extra gets extra camera time. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you're dead doing it. She's out there crossing her eyes and sticking her tongue out trying to get some camera time. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so Peter Peter Foley has now moved on to his third serial killer, and now it's getting more intense because he's increasing the pace. Now he's speeding up. And Helen starts getting more emails from him. He sends her one like it's a bride. He and her are going to get married or something. I, I kind of forget. There's there's a lot of taunting going on here. Yeah. And so she uh, needs to get guards to stand outside her home that she never leaves. And these guards, of course, Mike, are first class, top of the line guards. They never leave their post. right? Oh, they're great. They're great. They're almost as good as a mall cop. <laughs> Peter is sneaking into her house at will every single time he wants. The, he will consistently outfox the guards. They're the worst guards ever. Yeah, this is not exactly the A-team. <laughs> yeah. These were like, these are like uh, the John Benet cops. <laughs> That's, he's doing John Benet. He got the actual cops. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's his copycat. Same skill level. His bolder copycat here. All right, so, and this is where they, uh, there's a note at the Berkowitz Son of Sam killing directed towards Helen Hudson, and it's basically, it spells out what he's going to do, who he's going to kill, and now he's personally in, in bringing her into these crimes, although this is kind of a weird scene, like, it's like a police song, right? Yeah, so, and there's this very strange shot of, like, them playing, the song. so he, he, they, he leaves a note of uh, police song, Murder by Numbers, and the cops are just sitting there listening to it with the lyrics on the board. And it doesn't go anywhere. Like, I always remember, oh, that's like a yeah. it's a profound moment in the movie. They crack the case. But no, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just they have. No, it's supposed to be, though. It's shot like it is. And they're all sitting there stone faced. And the scene just goes on of them watching it. All right. Somebody arrest Sting. <laughs> oh, I'm all for that. <laughs> OK, so so things are escalating and they they're in no close to catching the killer. And Helen's giving them like a. uh psychological profile on this guy she's like you know he's a white male 20 to 30 as always he's copycatting like he's he's getting the fame that he wants he's getting the power that he wants but she's like there's something you should know about him like all this stuff he's doing takes technical skill these emails these crime scene replicas so he works in something very technical something very specific he's a very smart man and we do see that peter indeed works in what a dna lab yeah some sort of lab yeah, and that's important because I, I, we forgot to mention when when he did the, the uh, Hillside Strangler killing. I don't know if you know this. There was two Hillside Stranglers. 
There were two Hillside Stranglers? Yeah, they, they were cousins. And they would both... Was that, wait, wait, was that like by happenstance? Or did they plant... Or did there just happen to be two Hillside Stranglers? And then they were like, hey, cousin, you doing this too? What a dink. They like bump into each other. No, it was uh, <laughs> this guy, Angelo Buono, was the serial killer, and his cousin found out, and his cousin was intrigued, and he was lured into the world, Bianchi, Kenneth Bianchi. So, but they would, in the, movie, in the movie, they say, oh, there was two types of sperm found in the victim, the hillside strangler. Peter was able to do that because he works in a DNA lab. He has access to sperm samples. That's how he made it look like there was two killers to replicate the hillside stranglers. And I think there could have been a more interesting way for him to get that effect. It's a two-hour movie. We can't. We don't need too many sperm extraction, extraction scenes. <laughs> um, did we? I think this already happened, and we might have missed this. But um, so there were a couple moments, like we said, where he's in her house taunting her, and she's just opening and closing the blinds because the guards are useless. But then, but then it leads to the best moment of him taunting her in her house, where I think she's in the shower. And she gets out, and she's getting into bed, and there are bugs everywhere. And then there are more bugs, and there are more bugs. And she's like, where are all these bugs coming from? So she sees them congregated in one place. She lifts the sheet, and there's – I think it's her It's her book, right? No, it's Daryl Lee Cullum's book. Oh, that's right. That's right. And there is Daryl Lee, Harry Connick Jr.'s book with a very special bookmark in it, a finger. <laughs> There's a severed finger in the book, which, you know, talk about giving someone the finger. Daryl Lee Cullum, the killer from earlier in the movie who hung Dr. Hudson, has apparently has all these disciples that people write to him in prison. And this is very, I hate to say this, very accurate to life. Really? Serial killers in prison are like celebrities. They get so many letters. I have heard um, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Like, if you get a handwritten letter from Kaczynski, every one of his other fan club members has to know about it because they all, they all document who he writes to because it's like a big deal if he even writes back to you. <gasps> They're all like this. Wow. They, they must be the people writing that. Because who was it? Or I think there were multiple ones of these, like, uh, serial killers who get married in prison to somebody who's not in prison. That's every one of them, I think. Yeah, who was that? There was one of them who was, like... A well-known one. I know. I think it was also one of the Menendez or both of the Menendez brothers. But that's a separate thing because the Menendez brothers should be out of prison. I will say it. Taking the hardline stance, the political stance here on Staff Picks. Those parents had it coming. <laughs> but yeah, Richard Ramirez got married to a groupie. Ted Bundy got married to a groupie. It's amazing how much action these guys get in prison. It's crazy. Jeez, more than I do outside of prison. Because all these women feel bad for them. Oh, I'll be the one. Is that what it is? Yeah, they feel bad. They think they can change his ways. He's Ted Bundy's just misunderstood. He just, when he caves women's heads in with a crowbar, he didn't mean to do that. He just wasn't hugged enough as a child. It's crazy because this is this is what really happens. That's that's got to be another kind of sickness, like the people who falsely confess. There's a lot of mental illness involved in this whole subculture. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, says the guy who takes people on the Ted Bundy reality tour. <laughs> so so Daryl Lee Cullum has these disciples, and he tells them, he's like, this Peter guy is apparently one of Daryl Lee's disciples. And Daryl Lee has said, take this book, this book I wrote, and autographed it to Helen, and give it to her. And Peter has snuck into her house, put a severed finger in it, and left blood all over. So Helen, of course, is a little freaked out, but 
there's the plus on this mic. The if, if, if there can be a upside to a severed finger. Now she knows. <laughs> he gave her the finger. Yeah. Now she knows Daryl Lee Cullum is involved. So they have the video chat with him. Which, I mean, did he really have to be involved? Like, she was already so freaked out by him that she doesn't leave the friggin' house. So, of course, he has to be involved. Well, we do get Terry Connick some screen time here. This is his one big scene. <laughs> he must have spent all of a day on set. <laughs> yeah, and this is a fun scene. It's a video chat where he's in prison. A 90s video 90s, chat. 90s, yeah. It's very good quality for a 90s video chat. I'm always... I'm always on staff picks for 90s video chats. <laughs> they had the one in Mother with the video That's phone. Right. So Daryl Lee is moving his head to the side. He can't get in frame like in Mother. <laughs> Daryl Lee, just sit there. Just sit there. Don't move. Still me, Mother. <laughs> so, so, yeah, Daryl Lee now faces Helen Hudson for the first time since he tried to kill her. Still me, Helen. <laughs> I hope someone gets that. That's a good joke. but No one's going to get that. There's a callback. <laughs> so, yeah, Daryl Lee is talking to Helen for the first time since he tried to kill her, and she doesn't want to be there. And he's like, well, I'll tell you some information. He's like, she's like, this Peter guy, he's a nut. Stay away from him. Like, he's been writing me, and I thought he was just some fan, but he's a psycho. Stay away from him. And she's like, oh, what, what, what can you tell me about him? And he's like, well, I'll make you a deal. You tell me, like, I'll tell you what I know about him, and you give me your autographed Helen Hudson panties. And he says a little bit later on, too, he's talking to somebody and he's like, I have a pair of genuine Helen, Hun Helen Hudson panties coming my way. Although I have to say a little trivia here for people if this ever comes up on Jeopardy. Panty trivia? Panty trivia on Jeopardy. Daryl Lee uses a specific term for panties. Do you remember, Mike, what his colloquialism is for panties? Oh, raccoon squirrel covers. Squirrel covers. Was that it? Yeah, squirrel yes. covers, yes. <laughs> you know, okay, I'm just going to say it. So, you know, they were the big popular thrillers at the time. I really think that there should have been a spinoff movie between Copycat and Silence of the Lambs, and they should have merged these two scenes together. And when he gets her panties, they should have had someone say, I can smell your cunt. <laughs> so you think that's where this movie should have gone? That's the That would have been the appropriate spinoff? Come on, he's copycatting. He should have copycatted Buffalo. Oh, my God, you could make a whole franchise out of this where he copycats movie killers. That would be so good. This is going meta now. Now he's copycatting other movies that were out at that time. Yes. <laughs> he's going like the hand that rocks the cradle. He's Peyton the nanny. Oh, oh I would so be for – oh, she, she is amazing. I, she is delightful. Like, maybe it's just I hate kids, but... <laughs> so so when the nanny threatens children, you like that? Those are, that's a crowd pleaser? She is she is on my list of, like, women I'd turn straight for at the top of it. I do have to say a quick little plug. Hand the Rocks the Cradle is one of the funniest Staff Picks movie episodes I've done. So if you enjoy this one, go listen to that one. That one's really out of control. That, is, that movie is seriously underappreciated. I preach the gospel of the Hand that Rocks the Cradle to everyone. Right there with you, my brother. Actually, I wanted to bring this up because maybe it's just me who calls it this, but I feel like there's an entire subgenre of thrillers that I call the crazy bitch movies. Those movies where you watch it and you're like, ooh, bitch is crazy. So does this count as a crazy bitch movie? Copycat. It's a guy. It's a crazy guy, bitch, but bitch is crazy. He is crazy, and Helen Hudson is a little off her rocker at several points in this movie. So True. I don't know if this one really counts because she's our hero, but this probably does not. I would not put this in the same category as The Hand the Rocks the Cradle. 
No, those are more like the male-female stalker ones, like uh, Enough or Fatal Attraction. Yeah. Single White Female, again, another good one for that. Yes, that is a great Crazy <laughs> Bitch movie. The 90s, were, the 90s were the apex of Crazy Bitch movies. Okay, so again, Colin, Daryl Lee has all these disciples, and he says, you know, these people out there will do stuff for me. And he tells Helen, I'm death and life to you, Doc, which is a good quote. <laughs> Another thing I should say to my dates. <laughs> you have to date doctors first, or that won't be in context. <laughs> so now we get the uh, the, the uh, unnecessary murder scene in the movie. Uh, it, it, the movie goes off the rails a little bit here for a moment. Okay, well, I'll sum it up. I'll let you describe it for people. But all throughout this movie, um, MJ Monaghan, Holly Hunter, has had this heroic sidekick, Ruben, played by Durbel McDillett. And uh, he's, he's, he's trying his best to keep up with her. He's just like a rookie cop, and he's, he does a good job, and he's in love with Helen, and he's nice to Helen. And now he's going to die for no apparent reason. And she's in love with him, Holly Hunter. It's like a whole triangle. There's another guy. Who's the other guy? There's another cop. It's like a whole triangle of, of love. Yeah, Will Pat, the Will Patton cop. We got we to gotta get to Will Patton after, but first, let's – so, yeah, so they, there's like an entire – Asian gang that they have brought into the police station. And, uh, you know, talk about things in this movie that are unrealistic. Asians don't kill people. Wait a minute. You haven't been to the Bay Area. They got plenty of Chinatown gangs up there. Really? I thought it was like Asians and Jews. Don't don't they have better things to do. There's evil Asians, Mike. I'm just pointing that out. <laughs> but yeah, we have a whole subplot here where this Asian gang is being arrested. And one of them grabs a gun in the police station and shoots Ruben, which... It's always interesting. It's an interesting storytelling choice when a major character is killed by an NPC, a non-player character. <laughs> we lose Ruben for no reason here. And it's, and it's kind of Holly Hunter's fault. It is. That's, I guess that's, from a storytelling perspective, that's, it's kind of a, a choice that she could have saved him and she failed, and now she's lost confidence in herself. And also, this calls back to a scene from earlier in the beginning where uh, the two of them are at the shooting range, and she sort of admonishes him for not being more conservative in shooting people. Uh, but she shouldn't. She should have listened to him because that's what she should have done. She should have just like emptied bullets into this bastard because she got one shot in and got him to the ground, and she just would have shot him again. Then Durbel McDillett would still be alive and with us. Terrible. That was the one choice, the one chance Helen would ever have for sex again, and he's now dead on the floor next to a box of donuts. Uh, oh, by the way, am I the only one who, because we had this like slow motion shot of the donut hitting the ground, and I find that so tragic. I always just want to be like, no, someone <laughs> grab the donut. <laughs> Somebody save the donut. Yeah, I don't care about him, but... That's food abuse. Well, okay, Mike, here's the good thing about that scene. You could go to a donut shop right now and get a copycat of that donut. <gasps> Ooh. Okay, so <laughs> Reuben is dead, and now Monaghan has lost all confidence in herself as a peacemaker that she turns in her badge. She, she gives up. She's like, I can't solve this case. My partner's dead because of me. And the commissioner's like, no, you're a good cop. Stay on the force. And so she's going to get one last chance to redeem herself, and that's what's going to come. But... First, we have to talk about the Jeffrey Dahmer scene here. Well, I was going to say we need to talk about the Will Patton cop. Not that he's all that popular or not that he's all that uh, important in this, but uh, 
he's also someone who I think is underappreciated, and he is always in these crazy bitch movies also. So, yeah, in this movie, he's other cop. He's the cop who's not <laughs> Monaghan or Ruben, and he's always hitting on Monaghan, and apparently they used to date. So he's other cop, but yeah, he's played by Will Patton. Have you, Mario, have you heard of a movie that is uh, out now called Boarding School? I have heard of it. I don't know much about it, though. Oh, boy, do you guys need to see this movie called Boarding School. So he's in it. He play, He's the lead. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It's like this evil boarding school, and it, there's, like, cross-dressing, bondage, S&M children. Wow. <laughs> it is the most ridiculous movie I've ever seen in my life. With Will Patton. Does he play one of the children? <laughs> Are you kidding? This guy was Liz, one of those people who was just born a 40-year-old man. He came out of the womb with, like, a tie and a cup of coffee. Paul Giamatti. That's what we just talked about him the other day. <laughs> yes. that's like That should be called Paul Giamatti syndrome. Okay. So all the serial killer Peter guy has killed all these people. Now he's going to escalate up to Jeffrey Dahmer, who in... <laughs> from my experience was the craziest of all the serial killers he was the one who only killed guys and it was because he was lonely and because guys would love him and leave him and he didn't like that so he wanted male sex slaves that would be in his apartment for all time he'd kill them he would store them in his refrigerator and he would inject acid into their brain and eat them oh i was gonna oh good he did eat i mean not good but he did i mean good i was right good for him yeah so, okay, so he did eat them, correct? Yes, this is our first cannibal killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, good. We have, you know, some diversity. But he didn't he didn't go the full copycat, I guess, because uh, he does not, as far as we know, eat anyone. That's, see, that's my gripe here. This is not a Jeffrey Dahmer killing. No, maybe that got left in the deleted scenes or something, but there should have been a scene where he eats him. Yeah, they did not go full Dahmer here. So, okay, so to set it up, it's uh, Helen's gay manservant, Andy. And again, it be gay becomes a plot point because Jeffrey Dahmer killed guys in gay bars. And so he sees Andy in a gay bar in San Francisco, and he drugs him, slips something in his drink, which is what Dahmer would do. And then he takes him out and strangles him. And the last thing we see is we see Peter pulling out a hacksaw, which was very typical for Jeffrey Dahmer because the head was coming off. But this is my gripe with this. And then the next scene is just a body floating in the uh, headless body floating in the. Yeah, lagoon. see, again, it cuts away. Yeah, you see Andy's body floating in the lagoon. And that's not what Jeffrey Dahmer did. Jeffrey Dahmer didn't behead people in, and put them in the, the Bay of San Francisco. If Jeffrey Dahmer killed somebody, that bitch was going in the freezer. <laughs> he would, you know, he would save it for later. <laughs> I mean, not to joke, but yeah. He would have little food containers. <laughs> that's exactly. Just like Debbie Reynolds, that's the that is the crossover movie that we need. <laughs> so we need we need Andy's head with a little protective ice coating on the top. Yes, <laughs> the protective layer. So yeah, so that's my gripe with this movie that Helen's like, oh my god, he's doing Jeffrey Dahmer, but he doesn't do Jeffrey Dahmer. He just kills a guy and cuts his head off, which I hate to say is kind of typical to mini killers. That's not Dahmer esque. So I'm saying they kind of dropped the ball here on the Jeffrey Dahmer scene. See, it's like, so what you like about this movie is something I find a little frustrating about it. That it doesn't, it always sort of stops short of really going there. Like, they should have, he should have been eating people, is what I'm saying. He should have been eating people. Yeah, see, then you're the movie Seven. Now you become unpleasant. 
Like I said, this one's more toned down for you could it's not super unpleasant. They just kinda hint at the details. But yeah, you are right. It's they do they pull their punches quite a bit here. Yes, there are punches dead that are definitely being pulled. So Helen's servant Andy has been killed, but now now she realizes what the pattern is. And this is where we learn the order of the killing. She puts two and two together that Peters played the audio of the or the speech the night she gave she was attacked, and she's listing a bunch of serial killers in her speech. She says Albert DeSalvo, Bianchi and Buono, David Berkowitz, Dahmer, Bundy. She's like He's following the order in my speech. And this is why he keeps bringing her into this crime, because she's part of it, too. It's her speech. He's going through her list. And this is where the shit's about to hit the fan. She's like, oh, my God, he's about to do Ted Bundy. <laughs> um, so then on a separate note, we cut to Holly Hunter, and they find where he, they put together the wedding picture that he had sent her with them together. And they, like, do stuff with it with all their 90s computers. And so they find his house. So they go to his house, they have all the SWAT team, they have the Silence of the Lambs green vision, it's awesome. So they go in, and they see the wife, and she's dead. He has killed his wife. Now now he's just a jerk. Right? Although, you skipped one important thing there, how they get to his name. is because Helen says what he's going to do is Ted Bundy, and he says Ted Bundy's MO was he drove a VW bug, and he would appear to be injured, he'd go to college campuses, she's like... Do a search of everybody who has a VW bug in this general area, and that's how they eventually get him on a VW bug uh, license search or uh, a registration search. Talk about punch buggy. Although, I have another gripe with the accuracy of the serial killing in this movie here. <laughs> Tell us. Well, because she says he's going to do Ted Bundy, and she's like, Peter keeps saying he's going to kill three people in one night. Ted Bundy killed three people at Chi Omega one night. That's his signature. That was not Ted Bundy's signature. Again, you're talking to the Ted Bundy expert here. Is that Bundy... What was Ted Bundy's signature? Being hot? Well, yeah, being hot. Yeah, that was... No, he would drive out of a VW Bug. He'd go to college campuses. He'd have crutches or a cast. He would get a girl to carry his books to his car. Then when they were in the dark, he would sneak up behind her and crowbar her from behind. The only time he did anything like Kai Omega three times in one night is when he was so drunk and disoriented and off his game, he just went crazy and didn't even care if he got caught. So it's like to hold that up as the signature Ted Bundy killing is not accurate at all, and I call total BS on Dr. Helen Hudson. You can't question Dr. Helen Hudson. Oh, I fucking can. See, no, see, I told you she's a little delusional when she's saying she's their inspiration and their muse and their goddess, see? I think you're right. She's crazy. She's crazy, I yeah. told you. This bitch ain't playing with the full deck. It's, a, it's an unreliable narrator. She is. Maybe this is, like, all in her head. <laughs> Never happened. So they're inaccurate with their description of what a Ted Bundy killing would look like, and there never actually is a Ted Bundy because they apprehend him before he can get there. So we never get to the big Ted Bundy payoff in the movie. Which there should have been. Wait, Ted Bundy, though. Okay, so there was something about it I thought, though, there was, like, one signature thing, like uh, Jeffrey Dahmer eats people. Wasn't it Ted – was Ted Bundy the hot one? It is, but uh, there's another term that would be far more accurate that I used many times back at the start of the podcast that would be more accurate to Ted Bundy. Oh, <gasps> that was Ted Bundy. He fucked them. He's the necrophiliac, yeah. <gasps> no. And they tend to leave that out of most Ted Bundy books and biographies and stuff. Yeah. 
Wouldn't that be like the talk about burying the lead? Wouldn't that be like the first thing you would say? I will say this very gently because we may have delicate audiences, but. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Like any delicate, (laughs) fragile butterflies are still listening. Ted Bundy could only be turned on by women who were dead. (gasps) Freshly dead. And that's the key to his pathology was that the fresher dead they were, the hotter they were to him. And that was the only way he could really become sexually aroused. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think it would be the opposite? Like the more dead they are, you'd think so. But there's there's smells and woodland creatures involved at a certain point. Oh, I, look, you brought it up. You brought. I was having a tasteful <laughs> discussion of necrophilia, and you had to make it all weird. You called it before, though, when you said uh, the moda, the stuff that they – it's how they do it. Exactly, and that's the thing with him. Oh, it's definitely how he did it. That If you read books about Ted Bundy, it's like, oh, he killed people. It's like it goes a little further than that. He didn't kill them to kill them. He killed them because he needed someone to have sex with. That's the only way he could do it. So the killing was like an afterthought for him. It was like an incidental part. Jeez, I uh, I only saw I think the first episode or two of that Ted Bundy docu series on Netflix, and they didn't mention that. They just mentioned that like he was hot. As I said, people who write books on Ted Bundy go to me for a resource. <laughs> how do they? How do they? How is that not the first thing you tell somebody? Oh, by the way, he stripped dead people. Because most people don't want to hear that. They just like. Like, like you said, the women that get turned on by serial killers and are like uh, transfixed by them in prison, they they just want to hear, oh, he's the misunderstood law student who <laughs> tortured soul. Yeah, they don't. Oh, he didn't do anything wrong. He was wrongly accused of maybe accidentally kidnapping a girl once. I'm like, no, that's a, if they knew the other stuff, they wouldn't be writing these guys in prison. <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking nut job. That's the kind of stuff they left out of the movie and the book. So anyway. We never get to a Bundy killing, probably for good reason, or this is now an X-rated movie. <laughs> after after we're done with this, I'm going to look up, like, every serial killer thing ever. Just ask me. You don't have to look up crap. Just email Mario. Say, tell me about this guy, and I will give you a <laughs> whole summary on him. You should do – you should do, you should have a spinoff podcast about serial killers. I figure there's enough serial killer podcasts out there. And I also feel I would probably not do it tastefully as other people may, because I tend to joke about stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps I will get the blacklisted. (laughs) We would be so blacklisted. I really hope no Ted Bundy victims are listening. I apologize. (laughs) So anyway, that's the, they, they have caught Peter. They know that he's this guy, Peter Foley, and uh, they know his house and they go to arrest him. And like Mike said, the, his wife is dead. He kills his wife and he has also set his house on fire. So there's no evidence. So he has escaped. And they're like, crap, we came so close. And now Peter knows the jig is up, that everyone's after him. And now he's going to go get Helen and he's going to finish off his masterpiece. Oh, and we should mention that they find him using those like newspaper machines at the library that were in every single 90s movie. And I always wonder, like, were those real? Did they exist, or was it just a movie thing? Do I have to give you a little history lesson here? You're younger than me. <laughs> so those were microfilm or microfiche, which were in all libraries, and they still are if people ever want to go look. I actually – What do you do with it? They, so someone took a newspaper, and they scanned it onto film, and you take this big reel oh. of film, you put it under this projector, and you have to wheel through it page by page. It's the most tedious crap ever, and I will never do it again, but this is the only way you could do this back in the 90s. 
Wow. I They made it look so cool in movies. I thought it was like, uh, I don't know, you could... It knows what you want, and it goes right to it. Because they always show it, like, moving quickly and zeroing in on the one page. <laughs> it's because they skip these seven hours before that of her wheeling through looking for this one specific article. Okay, so we just found the only one thing that is superior now than the 90s. Yes, the internet has been very helpful with research. And our ability to speak to each other about necrophilia from halfway across the country. Exactly. This was a magical discussion that would not have existed pre-internet. <laughs> okay, so here's the end of the movie is that Helen knows that Peter has escaped and she's terrified he's going to come after her. And sure enough, he does. Guess what? He somehow gets through her security once again, <laughs> disguised as a cop, and he Ugh. abducts her and chloroforms her. This, these must have been the cops they had on the Zodiac case. <laughs> well, they could be. I mean, we're in San Francisco. These could be the same Zodiac cops. Yeah. So... He chloroforms Helen and drugs her and knocks her out. I mean, and basically what he is going to do, and this is kind of the how this movie comes full circle and gets really interesting. It kind of gets meta on itself, is that his final killing, his final copycat, he's going to copycat what Daryl Lee tried to do to Helen at the very start of the movie. He's going to hang her again in the bathroom and recreate that entire horrible torture scene. Oh, but beforehand, he, like, video conferences Holly Hunter and is like, you better come here and you better come alone. I like a, oh, hi. <laughs> oh, they're very casual. Oh, you caught me midway through my performance. <laughs> so anyway, though, so he puts uh, Dr. Helen Hudson, he puts her in a red dress from the beginning and her very feminine, very lovely red shoes. Unlike the fucking ugly ones. Yes, her nice shoes. Yeah, so he takes her, what, to the exact same auditorium at the start of the movie and the exact same bathroom stall. The exact same bathroom. Yeah, this, this is the world's worst bathroom for Dr. Hudson. Seriously? And he does the whole elaborate setup again with the clips and the steel, what would you call it? Not a rope, but uh, whatever. Yeah, it's like a rope climbing stuff. It's like a carabiner. It's like you'd use to, to climb up a mountain. And the clips and the hooks and everything and has her hanging above the toilet. Yeah, he basically has her hanging up just like before around her neck, the rope around her neck, the wire. She's holding herself up and he's waiting. He's like, Holly Hunter Monahan is going to come and rescue you. And this time I'm going to do what Daryl Lee was too stupid to do is I know there's a second cop coming. So he has figured out the loophole in Daryl Lee's plan. And so what he does is what he he lays down on the floor and he pretends he's the dead cop. So when she comes in, she won't see him there. And he, and he, because he's the copycat, he needs everything to be exactly right. So in the beginning, when she was hanging, one of her shoes fell off. So he takes off the same shoe and puts it on the ground. That's very important. See, we said that would be important. Exactly. I'm glad people have tuned and stuck with us all through the necrophilia and just for that detail. <laughs> if you're still listening, tweet necrophilia at us. No, please do not. <laughs> At Mikey the Harlow, necrophilia. <laughs> also, if you don't know what that term means, do not Google it. Thank you. It's a little PSA from Staff Picks. Only Google it in Google Images. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm like ruining your podcast. This is going to be my second and last appearance. I will never be asked back. We were family friendly up until this. Okay, so Holly Hunter comes in and she tries to rescue Helen. This is the big finale set piece of the movie. And this is a pretty intense scene where Helly Hunter comes in the bathroom and Helen is hanging up and she's all beaten up and bloody and she's strung up by her neck. 
and Helen can't tell her that dude on the floor that's dead, that's not a cop, that's the serial killer, because she's got tape over her mouth. So Holly Hunter is trying to find out where he is, and he comes up behind her and grabs her, and this is where we recreate the famous scene from the beginning of the movie where Peter's like, what should I do? He holds a knife to one side of her throat and to a gun to her head. He's like, should I stick her or should I shoot her? Stick her or shoot her? <laughs> he does a very good uh, yeah, Harry Connick impression there. Also, I feel like we should mention, we see this here and in the next scene, and also we saw it earlier, that, uh, what's it, Foley, the killer, which he keeps repeating that, like, almost the only thing he ever says is he's like, bitch. And he just keeps repeating, he's like, bitch, bitch. It is almost as if it's like how Lena Dunham thinks that men speak. <laughs> I, I was going to say that, because I, I, I remember the first time I saw this movie, the last ten minutes is just, yeah, this little baby face William McNamara singing, bitch better stop bitch and it's like it doesn't really ring true coming out of his mouth it's like a little boy using grown-up words <laughs> yes and he did it earlier in the bar too like somebody like walks past him and he's like bitch <laughs> well i guess that's meant to just portray he's a little twerp he has no he has no authority over yeah. anything he's just a little copycat that's what helen starts mocking anyway let's i'll get to that so he's about to kill monahan just like he killed the cop at the beginning of the movie but she somehow overpowers him little two-foot Holly Hunter overpowers the serial killer in a cop uniform, and she fights out of her way, out of the, his grip, but then he shoots her. So all of her is not. He, he blasts her in the chest twice. Aww. Poor Holly Hunter. Yeah. And as he screams, bitch. <laughs> I want to make that my ringtone. Bitch. 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 <laughs> yeah, Holly Hunter has failed to save Helen, but I'll give you a little spoiler. She's wearing a bulletproof vest, so she's okay. Which will get to my feelings on that in a minute. I have thoughts. All right, let's wrap this up here. So Holly Hunter's down. She's been shot. And McNamara is going to go over there and stab her and finish her off and make sure she's dead. And this is where Helen does a really cool move. This is I always forget this is in here where yes! Helen is going to do something to thwart the copycat. What is that? Dr. Helen Hudson in all of her all-knowing, brilliant, genius, pin-up girl glory realizes he's a copycat he needs everything to be perfect he needs everything to look the same right so she gets her other shoe to fall off because that does not match how things were in the beginning yeah that's really cool i always like that little plot she she just takes her other shoe off and basically hang because in real life helen hudson in the first attack did not hang she was holding being held up by her hands she kicks her shoe off and she starts hanging herself She's going to sacrifice herself just to fuck up his little homage, his canvas art. And he gets all mad. He's like, bitch. And he goes running over and like he has to cut her down. So it ruins everything because she ruined his canvas art. Which why wouldn't he just like put her shoe back on? Well, because, yeah, he, he could. I think her weight was pulling her down so hard he couldn't figure out how to do it. And he panicked. Oh, OK. Uh, so that's true. he cuts her down and then there's a little struggle on the ground. She frees herself and. He's going to, you know, finish her off, but a great Sigourney Weaver move here. She pulls a little shard of broken glass that is broken from the window, jams it right into his knee, which is a great moment. It's so good. And I, but I always wonder in that, because they do that a lot in movies that someone will stab someone with glass. And I'm like, wouldn't that hurt? Wouldn't that hurt your hand? I think it would, but at this point, I don't think she cares. She's been beaten up and chloroformed. True. What have you got to lose? There may be some Windex in her. We're not entirely sure. Oh, so she stabs him and they have a little tussle and she starts running outside. She's trying to get away from the serial killer. Well, you forget, too. And you forget, too, that like, oh, she was passed out and went from her house to here. 
So she hasn't been in like the great outdoors in over a year. So she climbs the stairs, goes to the roof, opens the door, and then, holy shit, it's outside. It's fresh air. <gasps> Which, who would think that that would be worse? <laughs> it's the great shaky cam footage here where the, the camera gets all wobbly and she can't be outside. So she's trying to get out there and she can't. And then Peter comes behind her and he's like taunting her. He's like, bitch. And he's like, I guess I cured your agoraphobia, which is a weird line. That's a, that's a weird line to deliver. I've never liked that line, the way he screams it. Why not? It's just an odd thing to taunt somebody with, the word agoraphobia. It's just, that's, that's not a taunt that comes rolling off the tongue. I don't know. I thought it was better than bitch. <laughs> <laughs> they had to give him something else to say. You have to give him a backup catchphrase. It's like Woody. You pull his string, and something else has to come out every once in a while. <laughs> um, so anyway, sorry. Yeah, so he's chasing her, and he's about to kill her, and Helen turns around, and she's going to fight him. She's like, put up your duke. She's like, I'm sick of you, pathetic little twerp, copycat, impotent little limp dick. And he's like, shut up. I'm going to kill you. And But she's going to stand up to him, and then right before he can take her down and kill her, who come? Okay, here you go. Here's You have a gripe here. But Monaghan is back, and she saves the day by shooting him. So, just for the record, Mike is groaning over the happy ending where the women live. I'm just pointing that out. <laughs> and now, feel free to bring forth your gripe why you hate this. <laughs> uh, okay, wait. Let's let, we got to paint a picture for you. So, it is the exact same thing that you would think it would be that like he's about to shoot her, he's about to shoot her, and you hear the shot, and you hear the gun go off, and then oh, he was shot. And then you see the reverse, the camera turns, and oh, it's Holly Hunter. She's really alive and shot him right in the nick of time. It is a Holly Hunter ex machina. What bullshit? Like, they do this in every goddamn movie. And, you know, I'm sorry, if, if there are any filmmakers or anyone listening to this, stop doing it. Stop doing this friggin' trope. It has been done. We Can we retire this? Because it is in every friggin' movie, and it annoys the shit out of me that you think the one person is dead, and then, ooh, they shoot the bad guy right at the last second, and then, oh, you don't know who shot him. Oh, it was the good person. He's dead. I am so sick of this trope. Okay, so let's unpack that for a second. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. So the alternative would be that he murders Sigourney Weaver and the bad guy wins. Or she elbows him and hits him off the roof. Like anything but that. That's true. That would be like a copycat of a movie where somebody gets pushed off a roof. That would be her copycatting. Oh, wait a second, though. Wait a second. Maybe you changed my mind. Because what if, what if this is like super meta and the movie knows what it's doing and it is copycatting every other movie <laughs> there you go that's i talked to the director he indeed said that's what he was doing <laughs> yeah that's his like revisionist history he's like no we just didn't know how else to end it and it was the end of the day and we were like oh fuck this although i should point out there is a nice little bookend because at the start of the movie holly hunter is explaining to durbel mcdillett how if you shoot a guy in the shoulder he'll drop the gun you don't have to kill him you shoot him in the shoulder you hit the brachial nerve he goes down but you don't kill him that's what she does to peter fully here at the end thus proving her theory at the beginning of the movie that is the effective way to stop a bad guy I just shoot him in the fucking head. Well, you're not Holly Hunter, are you? Well, it didn't work so well when she got Durbel McDillett killed. And I should point out, after she hits him in the brachial nerve, then she shoots him in the head. So, <laughs> Yeah, see? Because she knows I'm right. You get the best of both worlds. She knows she has to. 
<laughs> Maybe she learned her damn lesson, bitch. <laughs> if Durbel had to die so that she could live, then I guess there was a there's a lesson well learned. <laughs> and that's the movie. Helen Hudson has conquered her agoraphobia, and she is the and she has survived. And Peter Foley is dead, and Holly Hunter Monahan has, you know determined or proven to herself that she can indeed do this job and stop a bad guy and she believes in herself again and you think that's the end of the movie but i always forget that there's a twist at the end of this movie which okay that sounds a little bit worse you saying it than what it actually is because if people haven't seen it and they're listening they're gonna be like "Ugh, there's a twist so it's that same friggin' twist that they do in all of these movies that came after this where oh it's you know, like it would be, oh, Helen is really the killer. It was just the opposite of everything we told you this whole time. That's another one that's got to go. Let's retire that twist. But no, thankfully they didn't do that. I was going to say, at the very least, this one was set up earlier in the movie. Yes. So we cut to Harry Connick Jr. in his second minute of screen time in prison. And, ooh, he has other disciples writing to him. At, like Dr. Helen Hudson said, the virus continues mutating. So Daryl Lee is the one who created Peter Colum and said, basically, start doing this and kill her. And that didn't work. So he's like, you know what? I'll just go to the next guy down the list because all these psychos are writing to these serial killers in prison. Daryl Lee goes right down to the next guy in his list and says, you know, Peter failed, but you won't. Here's your instructions. Here's how you do it this time. It'll just go on and all the copycats. Thus reminding us at the end that the evil is still out there. Nothing has been stopped. Daryl Lee will not rest until Helen Hudson is dead. And the movie ends on a very disturbing close-up of Harry Connick's ugly face. Oh, that face. Oof. That's what you want the last shot of your movie to be. Just a zoom in on every pore on Harry Connick Jr.'s face. And there are many. I bet you he's a necrophiliac. Because who else is going to stop him? And you don't even know what kind of ugly-ass shoes he's wearing. <laughs> if I ever saw him in real life, I would just be like, bitch. <laughs> so anyway, that is our tasteful coverage of Copycat, one of <laughs> my favorite serial killing movies out there, even though, A, it happened in the middle of a bunch of other serial killing movies that were all got remembered better than this one, and B... The Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer stuff is not very accurate, and it really bugs me because they did so well with the first three serial killings. So it's always stuck in my craw <laughs> that they just phone in the two most famous ones at the end. They don't actually make them accurate. Well, so Mario, where would you rank this in terms of 90s murdery thriller movies? Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm here to ask the tough questions. And the, one, the two that I've done on Staff Pick so far, this and The Hand the Rocks, The Cradle, are my two favorites. Oh, Die in the Rocks of Cradle is like number one for me. I don't know if they're the best movies. They're just my favorites. I recommend them to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I would put Silence of the I know this is a very like pedestrian answer, but I would definitely put Silence of the Lambs at the top. Wow, that's a brave choice, picking the best picture winner for your talk. I know, but that's like one that's actually – you disagree. Well, you're going to be all contrarian and disagree, but <laughs> – No, it's good. It's You can't – none of them are better than Silence of the Lambs. You are, you are like, totally the person of, like, I knew that band before they were famous. <laughs> I liked them until their more mainstream stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, Silence of the Lambs is the best, obviously. It's the one that won Best Picture. And although I should argue, 
it's hard to say that copycat is a horror movie like it doesn't really fit my october horror theme but no. silence of the lambs is a horror movie and this is basically silence of the lambs so i oh i disagree with that people who say it's a horror it's like a horror movie that won best picture no it is a thriller yeah a horror movie is different yeah it's a thriller the exorcist was a horror movie nominated for best picture it's funny with those psychological thrillers from that era like i love silence i love this i love uh hand the rocks the cradle even seven i do like just not as much as this one but there's for every good one there's ones i don't think are that good and there's there's one uh pacific heights with uh is that the one with michael keaton is that Melanie Griffith? Yeah, Melanie Griffith and uh, and Michael Keaton. I don't think that one's very good. Yeah, I um, and there were all of those like there was a Sharon Stone one, and there was what was that Sharon Stone one that was ridiculous? And then there were oh my god, and then there were all like the erotic thrillers. There's a lot of yeah, body chemistry and oh, and the Madonna one. What was the Madonna one? I hate I hate that I know that was called Body of Evidence, but I did see that in the theater. Yes, body I saw of that evidence. in the theater. <laughs> oh. Yeah, there's a lot of bad – like, even single white female, I like the idea of it better than the execution. Oh, I love that movie, but it's trash. Yeah. And there's one called Raising Cain with John Lithgow, where he plays a guy with multiple personalities. Then there's all those shitty – the late 90s, like, Ashley Judd ones were horrible. There was well, – actually, there was one of hers that I love. It is so much fun, but it is so trashy. It is, like, a big-budget Lifetime movie called Double Jeopardy. Wait, now you're bringing in Lifetime movies? That's not fair. No, no, no. It was a theatrical movie, but it might as well have been. It was the like highest budget, basically, Lifetime movie ever. Have you ever seen that? I have not. I do not. <gasps> you haven't? Oh, you guys, tell Mario you want uh, a staff picks number three for Double Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yes, this is our foray into the late 90s uh, serial killer murdery movies. And yeah, Copycat is one that I wish it got a little more love because I really think it's well done and it's got good acting performances and especially Sigourney Weaver, who I think really does a great job in it. Oh, she's amazing. Now you've got me laughing at William McNamara screaming bitch with no authority behind it. Now I'm going to laugh at that every time. I need to rewatch that now. I just want to play it on repeat, bitch. So anyway, anything else you have to add before we sign off this tasteful discussion of necrophilia and Windex and all that? And bitches. <laughs> uh, Sigourney Weaver is amazing. Holly Hunter is amazing. Uh, watch Boarding School because you will not believe your eyes. Copycat is great. Seven is much better than Mario will tell you that it is, but it's great. It's good, but I don't recommend it for everybody just because I don't think everybody can get through that movie. It's just the one scene, kind of, I feel like, that's yeah. gross. Maybe two. <laughs> I know, I'll get a lot of hate mail. I mean, you don't see the box. I'm not even talking about the box, I'm talking about Sloth. The guy Yes, that's a nasty, horrible, oh, jump-scary yeah. scene that's just not fun. Yeah, I, that's, that's one of the few movie scenes I have to, like, watch through my fingers. Yeah, so you'd think they would have cut away at that scene like they did in this movie, but no, they don't pull punches in Seven. No. But see, this in this one, there are the punches being pulled. But but it's okay. We still like it. Okay. Yeah, and again, I just want to thank you for stopping by, and I will try to have you on for another trashy, murdery movie because you are a, such a horrible influence on me, and it's always a lot of fun. So thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me, dude. You're the best. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me on email at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until the next time, I'll be out there looking for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting and fun to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bitch. Bitch. <laughs>
I, I knew we were going to do that. <laughs> Don't park next to Vans. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for coming. Thank you.